strong My Last Duchess vibes. The Try Guy scandal. Although everybody in the world has read this book already, so... I know, we're really the last people. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, not even trying to destroy a marine-grade green polymer chair. And I'm Melissa, and I would say I'm usually better when I'm not in Boston. <laughs> it's better not in Boston. It's better not in Boston, as I say, from San Francisco, literally the other coast. It's too cold. <laughs> and this month, we're reading It Ends With Us by Colleen Hoover. Before we start, we should probably get a trigger warning out of the way. This book has a lot of spousal abuse and a lot of pretty triggering things, so if anything around domestic violence is going to be triggering for you, you may want to skip this one. Yes, and in addition to that, there will be spoilers. Although everybody in the world has read this book already, so... I know, we're really the last people. We're the last people to have read it, so I don't think the spoilers even matter. <laughs> okay, James, you ready to give us a summary, a one-minute summary? Yeah, I could, I could try to do this. <laughs> you can do it, I believe in you. Okay, one minute's on the clock. And three, two, one, Go! And we begin with Lily Bloom on top of a roof. And Lily Bloom is a 23-year-old woman who grew up in an abusive household. Well, her father was abusive to her mother. And on this rooftop, she meets a surgeon named Ryle, who is beating up a polymer chair. From there, the story has basically two different storylines. One is her reading her diary that she writes to Ellen DeGeneres for some reason. And she relives the story of her first love with a homeless boy named Atlas. Then the other storyline is her and Ryle, and her relationship with Ryle turns abusive at some point. She justifies it in all the ways that her mother used to justify it, and ends up pregnant by Ryle and married, and ultimately having a daughter is what makes her realize that she actually has to leave Ryle, and it ends with them. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> Ryle might be a hot, sexy surgeon, but he also sucks. Yeah, if I had another 10 seconds, I probably would have said that they end the book co-parenting together. And everything is really amicable. That is where, to me, honestly, there were parts of this book that really went into the fantasy. And that, to me, was the biggest fantasy element of the book. I feel like the book was really pushing the central thesis around there are no bad people. They're just people who do bad things. And especially in trying to make us feel for Ryle, that he has these rage, emotional regulation issues that he's had since childhood since he accidentally killed his brother. We like are given empathy for him. Mm -hmm. Even though he has been prone to like outbursts and like having like issues, like even his own sister, who is Lily's best friend, names her child after Ryle. Yeah. I think what was shocking to me is we had seen Ryle having all of these issues with a lack of control. And I'm sure there's a reason not to bring up abortion. But if you are pregnant by your abusive husband, no matter what, it's not going to end with you. Mm -hmm. You are putting a child into a potentially abusive situation, given that Ryle has tried his entire life to like deal with these emotional issues, and he hasn't been able to succeed. Right. She's taking the logic that her father didn't abuse her. Which was untrue. She did end up getting abused by her father. Right. He did hit her at least once. And there's that gamble does seem like maybe it's not the one you want to take with your daughter. Not that you should abort your baby. It's your choice. Women should have control and autonomy over their bodies. But it was interesting to me that it wasn't even brought up or the consequences of choosing to have the child weren't brought up. Yeah, no, that's true. Maybe we should get our criticisms out of the way. <laughs> no, I think this is probably a good idea. Let's just blow some criticisms out right, right away, and then we can get into like the trying to find the interesting side of this. Yeah, so there were two things that like bugged me where I feel like people were not treating the stakes as they should. 
this whole not considering an abortion thing, everyone was just so happy she was pregnant with her abusive husband's baby. Yeah. Bonkers to me, especially because it wasn't necessarily something that we had seen her want for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been different if she had had Alyssa's storyline where she'd been struggling with infertility and then finally got pregnant and was like, this is my miracle baby. Like, I'm so happy for you. But in no situation would I be like, oh my God, congratulations. This is the best thing that could ever happen to you. You're pregnant with your abusive husband's baby. There was a lot of normative behavior in terms of like traditional female roles. Like, I feel like her characterization, it was just implied that she would want a baby because of all the other things that she wants. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the author or the book felt like she needed to be characterized as somebody who wants a baby because it sort of like comes with the type of character that she was. And maybe that is like the hopelessly gendered aspect of it. Although there was one queer character who got exactly one scene <laughs> just to make the main character jealous. I legitimately don't even remember. Her gay best friend from the marketing agency. <laughs> oh, yeah. He gets one scene and he literally never comes up again. So much so that I forgot about him. Yeah. And then the second thing that I felt was like not talking about the stakes of the situation that really bugged me is far more minor is when her roommate six months into their lease in Boston, a very, very expensive city, tells her, I'm moving out and breaking the lease, so you have to pay for this two-bedroom apartment by yourself. And Lily's immediate thought isn't, fuck, I just opened a business and I have zero money. (laughs) She's like, oh, thank goodness. Now I get a two-bedroom apartment in Boston to myself so I can fuck my boyfriend. Right. No, 24-year-old is thinking that when the roommate breaks a lease. Yeah, especially when they've given up their entire inheritance to start this business and it's a super stressful situation. Pennies are tight. Yes. I mean, if we're talking about just, like, plot things that made no sense, my favorite one is the fact that the head chef, the sous chef, and seemingly the entire faculty of a restaurant is having their regular poker game on a Friday night. <laughs> not a not a Tuesday night. Not a Wednesday night. All the important restaurant people have a poker game on a Friday night. You know, you could just leave the, the food in the oven for 20 minutes. It'll be fine. Like, they don't need those people. Yeah. Yeah, this top chef cooks his cookies for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that very little research went it. But that is a bigger issue, too, with the idea that, like, these two people start businesses and their businesses make money immediately. Mm-hmm. Not, like, making money after the investment in the five years. Just they start their thing. They're successful. They're in the Boston newspaper. There was not a lot of realistic but it, you know it's a romance novel we could just accept the premises of these things right of course he's owned a restaurant for a year and a half and now he's buying an enormous mansion in the boston suburbs yeah yeah That's <laughs> right so, next to, that works yeah. it's not a romance if the man you're falling in love with isn't rich yeah no it always needs that prince quality and atlas is like very princey we encounter several different rich men as like romantic ideals with Liz's husband marshall who has sold a bunch of apps, and so he's like a tech millionaire. And then there's also Atlas, who's like a chef millionaire. But what's interesting about that is the book makes a very specific point to say both of these women fell in love with these men before they were millionaires. And Marcus, I wasn't that big of a fan of Marcus. Marshall. Oh, Marshall. Oh, sorry. Clearly you weren't if you don't know his name. <laughs> and Marshall, I just wasn't that big of a fan of Marshall. He's like another one of that like benevolent millionaire trope that we've seen where it's like, no, no, he's a good millionaire. He gives to charity. That like binary condition that she's created in her head where it's like, if gives to charity, then good. If not, then bad. 
is like really wild. That said, it is sort of like exposed as wild where like, yeah, Ryle gives to charity and yet things weren't so good. So it's like exposed as, but I don't know if it is. Like, I don't know if that, if she's like actually questions that assumption. And that's, that's, I think, the biggest problem for me with this is, like, yeah, she comes to the conclusion that she can't be with Ryle anymore. Good. But the, like, disturbing part of this is that there's a lot of things that he did that are left as romantic rather than red flags. The, like, most concerning one for me, although there were, there were many, I'm sure that you'll pick out more concerning ones than what I'm about to say, was the first time she goes to his apartment, she sees the picture that he took of her hanging on his wall. So so creepy like without consent without like anything and and it's it's coded as romantic it's coded as romantic in the book and it's never it's never dismantled it romanticizes something that i think is very clearly a red flag and it never dismantles that romanticization and that's like pretty messed up it was giving me strong my last duchess vibes I don't know if you remember from your literature classes the Robert Browning poem. I don't, so you should you should tell me. In Robert Browning's My Last Duchess, it's a dramatic monologue, so it's from this narrator, and this guy opens a curtain and says, this is my last duchess. You know, we had some problems. The poem goes on, and he's trying to court a new woman. He's trying to convince another person to let him marry their daughter or something. And then at the end, he closes the, the curtain again. And so the idea is that now this person's last duchess who doesn't exist anymore for whatever reason, only exists in paint, and he controls who gets to see her by opening and closing this curtain of where the, the painting is. I think it's just a very clear, he's treating her as an object, something to be collected, like he takes her picture, puts it on his wall without her saying about it, then he buys her an apartment without consulting her, like she's just a doll that's going to be in his house. And I feel like the book, even though it like she doesn't end up with Ryle and all that, like all this stuff is still left on the table as romantically coded, even though it's like really vile behavior. Yeah, I struggled with that too in the examples you listed, as well as I think in the sex scenes a little bit of the mix of how much are we being shown that this is a loving behavior versus a controlling behavior. I I think it's a hard line to play because we have to believe that there's a reason to love Ryle and that he loves Lily. Like that is like very, very clear. Mm But at the same time, we need to be, like, telegraphed that, like, he's going to become abusive yeah. at some point. Yeah. A man who love bombs you and knocks on, like, 29 doors to find you in your apartment complex is, like, not the guy that you want to be with. And these are early signs. I don't know if she ever reflects on those things as red flags, though. And that's that's the issue. Like, she reflects on other behaviors as red flags, but those are left not as signals. They're still left narratively as romantic right and i think there's also just a lot of not unpacking for lily as a character of like there's things where it's like don't yuck other people's yums like there's plenty of people out there who like have rape fantasies and things like that and whatever you want to do in your bedroom as long as everyone is like consensual and in our game it's like whatever like gets you excited you should feel free to do it the thing is is that i don't think lily was doing a good job of unpacking for herself like what she was conditioned to want versus like what she actually wanted because she was like giving up control to Ryle so quickly. I do think the one thing that was romanticized in this book was as a good relationship signal and like was Lily's attempt to show the idea of restraint that she makes Ryle wait to have sex with her that Atlas in a very notebook-esque way has waited for her his entire life. The quiet loving of Atlas versus the very like 
love bombing version of Ryle. Also, the line at the very end that I thought that was very interesting was from her mother, which is like, if he truly loves you, he will not try to get back together with you. And we see a contrast of how Ryle keeps on trying to push that boundary and get back together with her versus Alice, who finally says, Lily says, why didn't you ever come back to me? He's like, I did. And I saw you happy in a relationship at college. And so I stepped away. Yeah. Like there is a deliberate contrast there. Right. And and so Atlas is romanticized and stronger than Ryle. No, that that's true. That's true. There are two things that you said that I want to circle back to. One is how she gives up control by falling in love with him. I think that the book right away establishes like on the rooftop this weird gendered binary that men want sex, women want relationships, and when he decides he's going to be in a relationship with her, I feel like she codes it as she then needs to sacrifice something. Like he's sacrificing this thing where it's like, well, she's like tricked him into this relationship and so now she needs to like be forgiving of other things. And there's that that weird I don't know. It's it's gendered in a way that I was super uncomfortable with and that she doesn't ever seem to reflect on. Or yeah, and then when they are getting married and they're flying, they're like, oh, what about kids? And her best friend Alyssa, who's Ryle's sister, is like, don't worry, you'll trick him into that too. Exactly, exactly. And then there's like a weird I owe him something because she feels as though she's tricked him into this thing that she wanted, but he didn't. And that like leads her down a couple bad paths, which the book does code as regrettable paths however there wasn't a lot of self-reflection on the actual events or thought processes that led to the paths the other thing i want to circle back to that you said is the line that the mother said about how if he really loves you he'll let you walk away and that that's something i thought was really interesting and i think that this is where my criticism stop and where i think that it did something interesting is that it seems like everybody's really good at being able to tell right and wrong when it's not them. And so the book forces you to look at things through somebody else's eyes in order to understand like what you yourself are doing and how you should be considering your own self because it's difficult. It's difficult to see it when it's when it's you. And so like Ryle doesn't see his own behavior until he's forced to see it through Emerson's eyes. And also why did she name her baby after Ralph Waldo Emerson? Because that's the only thing that I could think of that Emerson, that it's the only Emerson association I have. Why would you name yourself under, uh, why would you name your daughter after an unreadable 19th century essayist? Emerson is Ryle's dead brother. Ah, okay, okay, okay. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Fair. I mean, the thing that I struggle with is they kept the name Riley for the daughter of Alyssa and Marshall. If I found out that I had accidentally named my child after a wife beater, there would have been like a whole chapter where it's like, I guess I'm renaming my kid. Yeah. That never yeah. comes up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My ultimate point is that Emerson serves as a surrogate for both Lily and Ryle to look at themselves and say like, oh, the situation I'm in, like Lily sees herself through her daughter's eyes, Ryle sees himself through his daughter's eyes, and then they both make wiser decisions than they have through the rest of the book. And that is really interesting. Like Lily calls attention to them. That, that's like addressed, I think, directly. Lily's thought processes about looking at herself and trying to understand the ways in which her situation is different than her mother. Like those are the best parts of this book. They're the most, I think, well-written. Like when you watch her thought process go from this is bad, I shouldn't be here, to maybe I give him one more try. Like, I think those those sections were actually really well written. Like, I see how her thought process works, which I think is, like, the hard thing that Colleen Hoover was trying to accomplish with this book. Yeah. There's a love of the book that I appreciate in, like, a Hallmark, Lifetime movie kind of way, where it is really, like, like basic empathy 
where it's like you hear Lily's story and now you know why women don't leave right away when they see the first red sign. You hear Atlas's story and you're like, oh, not all homeless people are on the street because they're a drug addict. And then you're like, wow, we're never going to fully know someone else's story. They're probably not a bad person. They're just like been in bad circumstances or they've done a bad thing. And so we should forgive everyone. And the best way to do that is to give money to charity. <laughs> right. That's, that's the thing that they <laughs> offer as a solution every time. Right. And I feel like that's like a solution that you have in like a Lifetime movie. It's like, oh, and then they created the Family Foundation and they feel great about it. Exactly. Versus... And they feel great about this thing that they just did. Right. But in the same way that she's like judging her own father for being like, he thinks that all homeless people are drug addicts and like that might be an extreme, but there's people like Atlas. We need to be thinking about the people like Atlas when we're giving to charity. Yeah. To be fair, when she's talking about Atlas in that particular situation, she's 15. Yeah. And like that's a totally fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, simple so. perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think that what is shocking to me is there are mentions of where they could be investing more into what working at a philanthropy we call groundwater solutions, which is like charity is treating the fish mm -hmm. and it's treating the fish within a lake based on what rich people think they deserve. Yeah. And it's creating almost like a system that cannot be undone because in order to give a service to other people, you need to justify that you exist. And so you're not incentivized to solve the problem as nonprofits. So like that is what charity is. And then you want to actually do a groundwater solution, which is like, hey, it's super fucked up that this kid, just because he's 18, is on the streets. What social policies should we be having in place where that is not the case? Even just simple things of there's only one homeless shelter and it's not near a high school. Yeah. There is no looking to that next level solution. It's just like good people give to charity and that's like all we're obligated to do. And then otherwise, let's have all of our people help us clean after our parties. Yeah, exactly. You pair that with, the, yeah, we've got people for that. We have people that buy our presents. And that's never questioned either. This, I don't know, man, there was some messed up stuff in there. But that's never reflected on. They also never say what charities they donate to. Just a vague binary condition. If charity, then good. If not charity, then bad. Because a lot of people have ideas of like what charity is that I would not consider charities. The, the giving to charity and some of these other things we've just been talking about, I think are indicative of a larger theme in the book, which is it's sort of an exploration of who has responsibility for who, especially because Lily spends a lot of the book thinking that Ryle is her responsibility or that her mother's her responsibility and that she is there to help him through these problems and that she can serve as a catalyst to help mm. him through some of this. Ooh, yeah. And I think that there are some ways that we could look at this book really charitably like that. The charity thing is obviously not one of them. I think that's just unambiguously poorly done. But do you just say, for example, Ryle doesn't deserve love. He doesn't deserve to ever date anybody. Like, is that is that a position that we're willing to take? This book obviously says no. And it, it gives you a sense of like, okay, his sister, she will take responsibility for him. She will be there and she will be the person that can love him unconditionally. He's got his friend Marcus who seems... Marshall. Marshall. <laughs> He's got his friend Marshall. Yeah who seems like he will also love him unconditionally. So there are people, and I think this book like showed that it's not on her to take responsibility to fix him, even though she has internalized that that could be her role or that she aspires to that role. She should not feel responsible for him. And it's nice at the end that he decides he's going to take responsibility for himself and that like, he loves her enough that he will walk away and go to the Mayo Clinic or whatever he goes. The number one hospital, not just the number two hospital. <laughs> right, right. After going to Cambridge. Oh my God. Also, the other thing that didn't make sense is no surgeon would grab a hot casserole pan from the oven without gloves. Yeah. I mean, 
Also, I, I, this is a little bit unrelated, but it's on the topic of brain surgeon. The trauma plot was just a little too on the nose, too. Mm-hmm. Like, he's trying to put his dead brother's brains back in, and then he becomes a, a neurosurgeon. Yeah. I mean, this is another thing with the book, is it has a lot of linear trauma plots. Like, this trauma equals this behavior. Mm-hmm. And it really simplifies a lot of things when it does that. Well, especially what's interesting to me is that they did it for Ryle, but they don't do it for her father. Yeah. We still don't know much about her father and, like, how or why he's a monster. And maybe the answer is some people are bad people. Like, that to me was surprising that we never got, like, a quote-unquote reason for her father, given the thesis was there are no bad people. But clearly her father is a bad person. Yeah. And pretty much the only thing we know about her father is that his work as mayor or businessman or whatever is very clearly more important than the teacher gendered position of the mother. And so there's like this hierarchy of like masculine and feminine work that the book asserts and never really questions. Yeah, yeah. Men are neurosurgeons and women are florists. Men are tech millionaires and women are stay-at-home moms who sometimes are infertile. And then they're just a stay-at-home person. Yeah. One thing you were saying about does Ralph deserve forgiveness who deserves to be his support people, which I think speaks to the complexity, which I don't really feel like we get to with Alyssa and Marshall is like, what is that situation like for them? And how do you negotiate that when you're being put into a pretty much impossible situation? When your brother, brother brother-in-law has done something unforgivable to one of your friends and she is choosing maybe to stay, maybe to leave. Like what is your role there? And when I was reading that, the thing that merely came to mind, I mean, how could it not, given everything that's happening in the world now, is the Try Guys scandal. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Let's fill everybody in on the Try Guys scandal. Yes. So basically, the Try Guys scandal is there are these four guys known as the Try Guys. They have a YouTube channel that originally came from BuzzFeed. And so they have millions and millions of subscribers, and each of them has, like, an identity that they follow so it might be like i am like the guy who eats all the food or i'm the gay korean one i what is zach's identity zach makes weird cakes he asks people to make cakes with his face on them he's got a dog (laughs) the feeling is his original brand was that he was single af and then he got a really hot nurse girlfriend and then he didn't really know what his brand was anymore um but anyways apparently to be a try guy is to be attractive, yes. which is where this is going. Yes. And then the final try guy is Ned. And Ned's whole brand is my wife. Yeah. I really love my wife. I love my wife. Ned barely refers to her by her name. Literally, it's her identity in relation to him. Also, he went to Gale and he talks about that a lot too. And so there's always been like a smug quality to Ned the entire time. But we're all like, you know what? His wife does seem great. Like, it makes sense that you would brag about her because she seems great. Um, It recently came out that after 10 years of marriage that Ned had an affair with one of their subordinates at the YouTube company. One of the producers, she herself was in a 10-year relationship while they were having this affair and had recently gotten engaged. The Try Guys as a company immediately did a internal investigation and fired Ned for misbehavior. And there's been a lot of discourse online. Ned's wife is choosing to forgive him or at least work through it. Yeah. Is Ned forgivable in the situation? Or like, what is the path to forgiveness? Right. And is there a path for like, just even simple things like Zach's wedding to his hot nurse wife is coming up. Can Ned be invited if Ariel wants him to be there? Like, he's still a person. Like, we don't know what was going on in that marriage. I mean, there's really no excuse for 
sleeping with them on your subordinates. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and fucking over your friend's company that you shared with them. It's a quote-unquote unforgivable thing, but I don't think it's a thing that you should be canceled for life for. Right. What is the path of forgiveness here? Like, if we're saying, like, all people are problematic, we all, everybody makes mistakes, where can you find a path to let that person back in? Like, they built a company with this guy. There's deep roots that extend beyond individual behaviors but you obviously can't keep them at the moment but like is there a path where in 10 years there's a try guys reunion and like he's done the right things and made amends i don't know but i think that this book is playing with that exact question of like can ryle actually overcome this and all we really know is that he goes to therapy like obviously i'm a big supporter go to therapy but like this book sort of treats that as a magic bullet as well (laughs) which it's not I think I just wish we had gotten more nuance in that take of like how Alyssa and Marshall were negotiating the situation. Right. We get the one take where she says, I love my brother, but if you get back with him, she very much takes Lily's side in the situation and you get a glimpse into what must be going on in her head, but we never really see her negotiate it. Right. And especially because that entire extent, she's like, I love my brother, but you better never get back together with him. As my best friend, I don't want that for you. But also, you're so so lucky to be pregnant. Congratulations. I'm like, what? (laughs) What is happening? Yeah. I don't know if you, how deep into Shakespeare studies you are, but there's this idea of of like green worlds in Shakespeare, like the art and forest and as you like it, or the forest in Midsummer's Night's Dream, where there's like the problems of the city or whatever the main location is. And those problems can be fixed if you just get to the green world. I don't know, like Belmont can fix the problems of Venice and a merchant of Venice. Arden can fix the problems in As You Like It and so on. It's like where the chaos and like breakdown of hierarchies can happen so that issues can be resolved and then you can return to the space changed. Yeah. And obviously Boston serves as that in this book. It's like this green world for Atlas in particular that he can escape Maine, go to Boston, fix his life. And it's his green world. But I think this book also treats marriage and like leaning into like traditional family as a green world where if she could just like get there, if she could do these things, then that will fix all the problems that have happened. Like if we can get married in Vegas. So like she sees it as a checkbox. So there's all these like traditional things like marry a doctor. And if you do that, things will be fixed. Have a baby, then things will be fixed. And obviously the book doesn't follow that logic because she makes a decision that not being married, not actually parenting in the same house with this traditional family with Ryle. She does turn against all those things in the end, but there still seems like there's something that she never questions the fundamental premise that that is a green world. That it is like a place, it's like a redemptive space. Like marriage is a redemptive space for some of the things that happen. And she treats it like that, but she never questions the premise. She just like turns away from it. Yeah. Again, I'm not really sure if that makes sense, but like, I don't know. I keep on going back and forth in my head about this, where it's like, this book isn't actually dealing with those issues, but then narratively she does walk away. I don't know. I think it's it's, it's all this very surface level. That is what I struggle with. And I think for me, the way that it ends with her and Atlas together, you would think like, okay, she's learned what she wants in a relationship based on her marriage to Ryle. Mm-hmm. But basically her ask of like, hey, Atlas, before we get together, I have a couple of questions to ask you. Mimics the gift she had Ryle basically identical, only with like a couple of new added items that aren't actually important. Her questions that she cares about is, do you donate to charity? Atlas laughs several. <laughs> <laughs> do you want kids someday? He nods, of course I do. Do you ever think you'll want to leave Boston? No, never. 
everything is better here, remember? And that's all she needs in order to like be like, great, we're soulmates. Right. I mean, obviously, Atlas at many points has proven himself throughout the book that she doesn't like need to go into like in-depth things. But there's something about those still being her big surface concerns. This charity thing is really bonkers to me. It's the same thing as like on a tangent again, she really wants Ryle to donate to charity, which he already does. And then he's like, I just want to make sure that you vote. I don't care who you vote for. You just need to vote. That one drove me bonkers too. <laughs> yeah, those are the deal breakers. But I think it's like the same, like it's this high level donate to charity, but you don't care what kind of charity it is. Voting, but I don't care how you do it. Yeah, it's these like weird stakes in the ground that don't actually represent morals. No. Or it doesn't actually represent the like type of authentic human you are. It's just something you would put on your Facebook profile or something. Yeah. I am curious with the sequel that's coming out, it begins with us. Because I think it's from Atlas's perspective. Oh, interesting. That seems like it's a good way to go with this. For me, Atlas was literally the only likable character in the whole book. Yes, easily. <laughs> so I don't even mean like easily he was the most likable. I, I mean, he was exclusively. Maybe there was that gay best friend that I totally forgot about yeah. um, because he <laughs> appears in one thing. But like, exclusively likable character. I'm not down with the like billionaire going for free beers. I don't know. None of that stuff spoke to me. I guess the best friend is cool sometimes, but there's still something weird about her people and this like just unquestioning nature that she had and the whole being happy about the baby thing. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. But Atlas was exclusively the character. So maybe he's the one through which we can actually get reflection. But even if that's the case, like even if Atlas gives us all of the reflection on some of these like norms and this like coercive pressure of marriage and the unnuanced nature of charity then the gendered roles that that would set up would also be caustic it would be like oh this is just like a mentor in morality through which lily is going to like learn how to actually be reflective on why she likes what she likes and why maybe that's not the best do we ever find out if lily gives to charity (laughs) I i think she says that she does does she? I, I actually like, can't remember. I mean, she's apparently employing like half of Boston, so that they buy her presents for her. Part of me is like, charity is just something that rich men do, and your responsibility as a woman is to find a rich man who can give to charity. Yeah. If you care so much about charity, maybe you would care more about this double rent you have to pay, <laughs> which meant that you could spend less money in charity. Right. <laughs> and then the other thing, speaking back in the specifics thing, is... And I'm hoping we would see it with Atlas's perspective is what kind of charity do you care about? I know I keep on saying like there's lots of different kinds of charity, but it would be very different to me if this was all leading to a Hamilton-esque sort of thing where the charity that, that Lily wants to start is for homeless teenagers. Yeah. If that's like been her goal her entire life, I would have like read that line and started sobbing. Yeah, yeah. Just like I did when I heard the orphanage in Hamilton. That could be a really positive way for it to go. I think I was reading it as the only way it could go is that we learn how to be reflective through Atlas. But it could be that from Atlas's perspective, they both start to reflect on these things together and start to be more intentional with the way in which they express their love and the way that they express their equality within the partnership and the way that they give to charity, not just that they do these things, but like how they do these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if they do that together, the book will be an unqualified success. I'm, I mean, it's already set up to be. It ends with that has to be one of the most popular books of all time at this I, point. Okay, can we try to figure out why? The amount of brain power I've spent trying to figure out why is unbelievable. 
Because this is not, it is not the things I associate with Gen Z. Yeah, this has nothing to do with Gen Z. Literally, there's one gay character who exists to prop up heterosexuality. Oh, Melissa, there's actually two gay characters. You're forgetting Ellen DeGeneres. The most famous of all gay characters. The original. That's true. I bet the name Ellen is also said more than any other name in the book. What's interesting to me is... When did Ellen get canceled? Uh, That wasn't that long ago, although I I don't know. I think this book was published before she got canceled. And so there's something that's almost like the chef's kiss of the book to me was like, oh, Ellen Jennifer is a central character in a book. There's no bad people. They just do bad things. And Ellen Jennifer turns out to be a horrible human being. Okay, here's a spicy take of mine. I haven't canceled Ellen. (laughs) So spicy, James. I know that everybody canceled her, but Ellen has done more for LGBTQ rights than I can even imagine another human being ever coming close to. And maybe people my age are uniquely positioned to have seen it, but like... I think we all witnessed our parents go from being gay is not something that's acceptable to, oh, Ellen's gay. Like, I guess it's fine. And like, she was a catalyst for that. And that like took a ton of work. Like, the amount of abuse she took and the amount of labor she did there. Like, for me, she's got a pass for a long time. Like, she can obviously do bad things like all people do or like be negligent in her position as a boss and like... I'm going to withhold my cancellation of Ellen for a while. And I honestly think like your take is probably the same take that the book gives us about Ryle. In the same way that Ellen has done a lot of good, especially for like LGBTQI plus like people in the world, um, starting in the 90s when she came out literally on like primetime television. But at the same time, just because she has been so instrumental in this movement does not mean that the countless reports we've seen about her being a terrible, abusive boss to both the employees underneath her as well as to the guests from her show. Those things aren't mutually exclusive in the same way that like Ryle is a great surgeon who's like saving conjoined twins, but also is an abusive husband. Mm-hmm. We all contain multitudes and him hitting his wife does not negate the fact that these two twins can live a normal life now. Yeah. And so I do think the book is actually very anti-cancellation, yeah. which maybe we're reaching a moment of Gen Z where we're going back to call in culture instead of call out culture, and more like restorative justice. Right. I mean, the positive thing about this book here is that Ryle cancels himself in the end. And like that's sort of the point is who who's responsible for who and Ryle in the end takes responsibility for himself after seeing himself through his daughter's eyes. I think the other things where I'm trying to think why it's popular, it just had like very strong notebook vibes where it's like so sweeping romance. It's the unquestioned gender roles that are really killing me. Like that's the thing that I don't understand how people have accepted this so unquestioningly. Like it doesn't have bad reviews anywhere. Even the couple videos I saw on YouTube that were, like, the only bad review you'll see of It Ends With Us, like, it wasn't even a bad review. Basically, the person said it was fine. (laughs) And, like, that was their bad review, is that it wasn't the best thing ever, and they considered that a bad review. This is just very confusing to me. Well, I also think there's something that's hard to criticize in a book that is a lot about an abusive relationship and a woman successfully leaving an abusive relationship. Yes. The reason I think this is resonating to people is, or at least they were just like, oh yeah, that was a good book, is like, there is victory in the end. Yeah. Especially in a society that, so speaking of Gen Z, like we tend to villainize women mm-hmm. in these situations, whether they stay or they leave. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really nice, easy, clean cut situation where the protagonist is like, it ends with us, I formed a boundary and I'm moving on. And we never get to a situation where they're in, like, the real mess that an abusive relationship can be. 
like a Johnny Depp Amber Heard situation where there is escalating violence where it's like a co-created dynamic where there is um, reactive violence in response to abuse from your partner. Yes, I agree. And, and this book does do that really well. That like person versus self narrative that it constructs about her struggling with herself and her not wanting to be like her mother, but then seeing her mother in herself. Like, as I said, those I thought were the best parts of this book. If it were like the best written and the most nuanced. And if you just look at that, it is doing something that I haven't seen done before and it's doing it particularly well. I'm just not understanding why that particular thing resonated so hard with so many people. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. Because it doesn't even have like the thriller elements that I feel like your Leanne Moriarty's have. I mean, that said, it was a rip of a read. I think everybody that reads it just rips through it. It's like super fast. I, as, as far as like a storyteller writer, she can create tension in a scene that just like pulls you through it over and over and over again. Yeah. Although I almost needed a better editor. The number of times she repeated something, like the same thought over and over and over again in a row, drove me bonkers. Yeah. I was like, just get an editor. This yeah. could be 75% of the length if you just got an editor here, man. Yeah. Maybe the fact that it was such a quick read, that's part of it, is that people who don't think that their readers can read this and be like, I had a feeling. Maybe it was a gateway read for people because of how accessibly written it was. Yeah. Not all books can do all things. And this book had a very specific purpose. And that purpose was to build empathy for a woman in an abusive relationship. And that is a population that doesn't often get a lot of empathy. And that is a really nice, kind, well-executed, like it did all those things. It checked all those boxes. It does depend on you liking Lily, I think. And I don't know if I got there, but it seems like a lot of other people did. So I didn't dislike Lily. I just found her to be really dumb. <laughs> but again, is she dumb? Or again, I would also say, say that Atlas is dumb for having his poker night on Friday. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like a, some of her dumbness is in her own got a fairly new restaurant <laughs> and has all his important staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that what's interesting to me about Gen Z liking it is like I see Lily as someone who is more our generation or maybe a little bit older, which I think is who Coho is, where she's growing up in like a very white suburb area in Maine. Her dad is the mayor who tells her that homeless people are all drug addicts. Like I bet that she thought affirmative action is racist against white people until she was like much older. She's in the book and she's like 24 or something. She's at an age where it makes sense that she's as naive as she is given her upbringing. But what is interesting is like the only part of her identity that is really pushed or tested where she gains empathy is around homelessness and then abusive relationships. And I think there is a reason for this to be popular and that those are communities that need a lot of empathy towards them that have not historically received them. And I can't think of a similar big novel that addresses domestic violence like this book does. I agree. Maybe there's something comforting in just that it is trying to do those things well. And so it ignored the normative gender roles and the other issues that are top of mind. Uh, a coworker of mine, when I was saying something about like how normative those gender roles are, about how it just like assumes marriage. So one thing is when in the author's note, there's like three full pages of her talking about how she had her stepfather give her away rather than her father give her away. And there's no reflecting on the language that's being used that she is something to be given away. I'm just so used to reading things that question that kind of thing all the time. 
And maybe there's something comforting and like, you know what? Let's just like lay down our sword there and deal with this other thing for a second. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And my coworker was like, yeah, I also want those things. So maybe that's why I liked it is because like I am that kind of person who wants to go to prom and be married and have kids and... And that's like perfectly reasonable. And I'm just used to reading a lot of books that question it at every turn. Well, or even that if they don't question it, they at least name it as like, you know, I don't know if it's me or I don't know if it's society, but this is what I want is I want to like be married at 24. I want to be pregnant at 24. I want to have a super rich husband. I want a loving father who gives me away. And obviously there's no decoupling like what is genuinely coming from you and what is coming from culture. Like those two things are always going to be coupled. Right. And I think that that's where, especially where I was thinking about like a lot of the sex scenes are about Ryle having complete control over Lily. And it just took me back to that Sex and City episode where Miranda's dating that asshole. And she's like, oh, what I hate in my personal life is what I love in my sex life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But she's like analyzing it. She's like, why is that? I'm not going to change this about myself, but like got to really process like why that is as me as a woman, even if this is like how I do want to be treated in the bedroom. And I feel like there's a weirdness the book is kind of toying with, but doesn't do completely, which is when we are anchored in the heteronormativity of these wants and desires that society has put into us, it can go great if you're all on the same page, but there is a dangerous thread you could potentially pull that it can like actually end up being so much of the heteronormative power dynamics that it very much can disadvantage women. And it can turn to like violence or abuse or control or all of those sorts of things if you lean in with your eyes closed. Yeah, and a lot of the book, especially in the sex scenes, it's Ryle wants something and she lets him have it. Obviously she is turned on by him and there she wants the things too. But the way that it plays out is often the narrative is he pursues it. Mm-hmm. It's like predator prey. Which like can work and like that is like what you two want. Good for you. But yeah, yeah. when you're following the narrative that society is giving you to the letter, there is a chance that those dynamics will get harder and rougher because society does put men into this place of power and dominance. Yeah. Have we have we done it? We solved everything. We solved it? Okay, cool. I don't think that we actually solved why people like this book. I, just, I don't know if we're ever going to figure that out. No, no. And why there's not more critical takes of it this is one of those books where it seems like if you're between 15 and 25 over the last three years you have read this book well that includes us now too even though we're not 15 or 25 nope and the next time we talk i will be 40 so let's let's figure out what we're gonna read between now and me turning 40 i wonder what like book talk recommends for decrepit people like us and especially you. You're basically dead now. I think that I'm done taking book talk recommendations. That's that's the first thing I want to say. And also, I'm going to start admitting that these are not YA novels. These have been romance novels. And I just assumed because of the way that their cover is and who is discussing them that they were YA. But they're, they're romance. Mostly we've been doing romance novels here. I'm 40, and I'm starting to just like admit the things that I like. And one thing that I like, and I used to be embarrassed by this, is I really like a good Christmas movie. Like those Christmas rom-coms. Yeah, the Christmas Prince series is a dystopian nightmare. It's a dystopian nightmare, but I still like it as a movie. Like I I will watch all these things. (laughs) It's true. And it's interesting because like in that movie, I'm willing to forgive that literally no one has researched what a journalist is. And like she's a worse journalist than Alice is a chef. (laughs) Yeah, right. 
And yet I let the Christmas Prince get away with it. And this book, I'm like, come yeah, on, Alice. Because the genre of Christmas rom-com is supposed to be completely nonsense. Exactly. This book was taking itself seriously. Yeah. Christmas movies don't take themselves seriously. Yeah. So to that end, there is a book that's coming out on November 1st that I read about called Kiss Her Once For Me by Allison Cochran. And... Uh, it's a holiday rom-com. It's coming out for the Christmas season. On Goodreads, it says, A festic romantic comedy about a woman who fakes an engagement with her landlord only to fall for his sister. Oh. Would you be up for doing this? Absolutely. There better be mistletoe in it. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and were produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Please join us next month when we'll be reading Kiss Her Once For Me by Alison Cochran. 